Okay, here we go. October 23rd, 2011, lecture discussion number uh, intermission review nine. And that is what I've been calling them, as you know. And, and yes, uh, we've wandered far away from our Roman study um, with its mock zender interferometry and ubiquity of law and the purpose of the creation or as I like to say, the uh, purpose of the physical reality, that's something everyone should always ask. What is the purpose of the physical reality? And both uh, for humanity, the purpose for humanity and the purpose for the angelic realm. Do not assume that the purpose of the physical reality is the same for each created uh, uh, free will beings. Babies are fine. That's right. Take the babies away from the husbands and the grandfather as much as possible. Okay. Instead, we have found ourselves at Numbers 20 because of Psalm 118.26, which is what? You should know. Psalm 118.26 is what? Blessed is he who comes, which I think is obvious, and I believe I can make the case easily. haven't necessarily done it. I'll do a little bit of it today. But I believe it is shouted by Michael the archangel at 1 Thessalonians 4.16, what is 1 Thessalonians 4.16? That is the place of the rapture or the catching up of the church. And that shout, his, it's, he shouts that and he shouts another, as I'll get to in a minute, but he shouts, uh, blessed is he who comes at, at the catching up or the abduction, or some would say the rapture of the church. But abduction is a better theological term. And when that is shouted, that fulfills the pledge of John 14, 1 through 3, which Christ said, I will come for you. And so that promise is fulfilled, and that is step eight of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which is in your bulletin, right? I hope it is. And that, by the way, is why, behold, the bridegroom comes, is also shouted alongside the blessed is he who comes at step 10 of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And you have to ask, why are both of these phrases shouted by Michael the archangel? He shouts two things, behold, the bridegroom comes, and blessed is he who comes. Why both of those? And all of that affirmation somehow fits together with Numbers 20, and I'll get to that in a minute. But right now I want to read you a little bit of a letter from Captain uh, Nick Stewart, um, uh, who wrote to us. And he wrote this. Dear Pastor Chronister, and he sent the rubber chicken back. That's very important. Please continue teaching. Your sermons have ruined me for typical church services with their emotion-based, feel-good message that staunchly avoids any sensitive issue and is devoid of solid foundational truth. I find that I cannot accept most churches any longer on their own, uh, on their own confusion and ambiguous doctrine. I have yet to find another church that does not remove the deity of Christ in some manner. Your rule number one has been my lit litmus test for years now. I'm sorry to say most churches leave much to be desired. I blame you and am forever grateful. I know, however, that I am still learning and still have questions. Having graduated my teenage years, I know there are things I don't know. I'm lucky in that. I learn every time I listen to your services, your method of teaching, i.e. asking more questions than you answer, however circuitous is the best I've seen. 
So now he gives us ten reasons. By the way, this is a, a veteran of Afghanistan. How many tours of duty has Nick served over? Oh, Iraq. Oh, I thought he was in it. Okay. He gives us top ten reasons to continue teaching. You've ruined too many people for other churches and must continue now to teach them lest they hold sit-ins on your doorsteps for more information. <laughs> Step nine. We need good, or I'm sorry, number nine. That was number ten. Now number nine. We need good jokes to laugh at. I will sit in the front row from now on. Eight. Without the Sunday service, you have no reason to omit yard work from your schedule. That's not true. I have thousands and thousands of reasons. Seven, Diet Coke tastes better in front of a whiteboard. Six, the old man band would have to begin touring. Five, buffets taste better in church. Four, you'll never get through all your notes in one service if you don't keep trying. Three, Christmas party. Two, answering questions with oblique and winding questions of your own for anyone besides Cliffside members would produce a dubious result. And number one, where else would Anna be allowed to sing? <laughs> I know you'd appreciate that. I'm certain the reasons to continue are endless, he goes on, but speaking as a loyal listener, an internet member of Cliffside, please add my request to that to the list. Funds for Diet Coke, donuts, and other sundries are included. Please ask Lori to forward the Cliffside account and routing numbers to facilitate automatic deposits for future contributions. I know that any amount helps, and I encourage other listeners to make similar contributions. Diet Coke isn't free. Also included is the rubber chicken of Christmas party fame that was gloriously won and kept in 2004. I've always found it motivating and hope it will encourage you as well. Recommend storing it in a nightstand. A squeeze with your AM alarm should motivate you immediately. Lori, too. Take care and let me know how I can continue to participate as a member of Cliffside. Sincerely, Captain Nick Stewart, uh, loyal Internet listener. Anyway, I just wanted you to, to know that, and I wanted the Internet audience to hear from him as well. And he is right. The rubber chicken is re-entering the Christmas party event, and you don't want to miss that. Anyway, everything that, uh, that I said prior to Nick's letter, step eight and step ten, and these two phrases, blessed is he who comes and behold the bridegroom comes, are said, screamed, yelled, shouted by Michael the archangel at the catching up or the abduction, which is, as I said, uh, both step eight and step ten of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And somehow all of that fits with Numbers 20, which is what? That is the rebellion or what the, the rebellion. And, and be careful how you say rebellion because you have to understand how it is exactly that Moses and Aaron rebelled. It is a rebellion. Was it done with malice? But the rebellion of Moses and Aaron, who performed, by the way, officiated, as you know, the wedding of God in Israel. They are the officiants of the wedding of God in Israel at Exodus 19, Exodus 24, Exodus 32, and Exodus 34. How did that ceremony go, by the way? You should know how it went. Did it go well? Was that a good wedding? No. The ceremony was not without difficulties. What was the difficulty? 
while the wedding ceremony was being done, while it was occurring, during the wedding ceremony, if you will, what happened? Adultery occurred. Imagine. Oh, I see, Felicia, that you've come with a new bionic system. Cool. Does it work? Does it? It looks like a pretty... Wow, look at you. Have you hit Mark with that yet? Are you going to? That's very impressive. You should lift it up. Can you lift it up over your head? Wow, isn't that cool? Yeah, I think she can. The question was, is can she lift the front end of the car off the ground with her new arm? It looks like, like it's very impressive. Sorry, I just noticed you. Hi. You're now all over the Internet, you know. And ask Dave how many people that is. It'll shock you. <laughs> okay. Imagine this. Imagine I'm doing a wedding, and I've officiated many weddings, and, um, and every time I do, I do the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, much to the dismay of almost everyone in the, uh, in the uh, audience of that particular wedding, but I do it anyway. And uh, just imagine in the middle of the ceremony, while I'm doing the ceremony, the groom has, uh, commits adultery. That's essentially what happened at the wedding with Israel and God. The golden calf is the most prominent adultery in Scripture. Breaking, that caused the ceremony to be broken into two sections, right? I had the ceremony. I have this adultery with the golden calf in the middle of the ceremony. Moses comes down the mountain with the marriage contract, doesn't he? He has the marriage contract in his hands. As, as you know, it's my view that they're identical. There's ten elements in, on one stone and the exact same elements on the other. God would have one and Israel would have one. They would each possess uh, the, uh, one of those stone tablets, if you will. By the way, where do they believe the stone tablets are now? Yeah, they believe they're inside the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. We have handwritten in the finger of God the second set of the marriage contract. The first set of the marriage contract, what happened to them? Moses cast them to the ground as soon as he saw the adultery. During the wedding ceremony, the bride is... I'm sorry, did I say groom? Uh, In my example I did, but but in the wedding ceremony, the bride is committing adultery. And so the contract is cast to the ground, Exodus 32.19. And a new marriage contract is handwritten, Exodus 34.1. It is a wedding contract or a marriage contract, uh, sometimes called a new covenant. Every time you see new covenant in the Bible, where do you see new covenant in the Bible? You see it at the communion service. Uh, when Christ says, this is a new covenant, you see it in Jeremiah 31. This is a new covenant. Every time you see the words new covenant, you know that that is marriage ceremony language. It's a reoccurring theme within Scripture. Understanding the new covenant is within the marriage ceremony symbolism, frankly, that's critical to interpretive accuracy. You need to know that. If you don't know that, I hope you now will start to research that and find out what it really means when they say new covenant. So, if you've been here the past two Sundays or so, Uh, then you know we've got a pile of unresolved questions, a a list uh, to complete and conclusions to draw, which are not easy. Numbers 20 isn't easy. Nothing's easy, as I say, as much as I can. But Numbers 20 is a little bit different in that uh, 
it makes us do the best we can with the information we're given. What I mean by that is sometimes the Bible doesn't quite lay it out. Have you noticed that? You know, it doesn't lay it out, and I get that complaint all the time. Why doesn't God do a DVD and mail us all one? So we watch the DVD, and we won't have to do any work at all. We'll not have to. That's why I read Janice's letter. We don't have to. We don't have to learn anything. We don't have to work. We don't have to do anything. We just watch the DVD. God doesn't do that. It should be obvious to you why he doesn't. But Numbers 20 is one of these places where it's not laid out, and sometimes all we're left to do is what? What are we left to do? It's not spelled out for you. What do you do? You reason your way through it. Hebrews 5.14. Reason your way through it. Mature Christians, they can. They have been told, we are told that teachers... You should be teachers by now. You should be off the milk, Hebrews 5, and you should be able to reason your way through the Bible. That's what teachers of Scripture, mature Christians do. And Numbers 20 is such a place, a place where perhaps the best we're going to do is figure out what most likely happened here. And then we'll move towards Psalm 118.26, which then pushes us to the 12-step Jewish betrothal wedding ceremony. And hopefully you've got all or most of that. And if not, that's okay. Uh, I'll get you to the finish line, I promise. I will. I have no guarantees, however, to your condition on arrival. Because I have to drag most folks, and that's problematic. The whole rope burns and pavement and gravel stuff to deal with. By the way, John Gray, I don't even know if he's still with us, but he pushed me off a teeter-totter when I was a little kid. And I have gravel still stuck in my chin. I've never forgotten John Gray for that. He also took one of my cookies. He did. He was older than me by a lot took my cookies at his birthday party. I was three. I've never forgotten what he looks like. So I remember the gravel. Just threw that in there. Okay, let's uh, refresh the biggest questions and, and then see what we can do. Moses and Aaron collude. They rebel. We know that. I do not believe that it was uh, out of some self-aggrandizement or some kind of ego or some kind of seizing of power or wanting to show off. That doesn't fit. Okay, Again, reason your way through. Moses and Aaron, they rebel. Numbers 20, 24, Numbers 20, 12 says that it is rebellion and they did not believe. And so the two questions leap out. What was their motive for rebelling? What were they trying to do? Were they trying to seize power? What do you think? Do they want control of this congregation? They want more power? Do they want more recognition? Was that their goal? I don't think you can defend that. I see the opposite in Scripture. They wanted out of the job, if anything. So what were they rebelling against? What did God, uh, what specifically is the rebellion um, about? And what exactly did they not believe of God's Word? God gave them something to, to believe and they did not believe it. What exactly was it? And I submit that those two questions are inseparable. In other words, the answers to each have to be compatible. They have to be consistent with each other and, and to God's description of the character of Moses. Okay? Moses is what? 
He is the most humble. He is a faithful servant. He sees God face to face. He wants to be blotted out so that Israel can live. He's a mediator and an intercessor. He is very fatigued. And he is a type of Christ, Deuteronomy 18.15. That is Moses. He will listen to the people complain for days. He'll sit there. He cares more about the people of Israel than anything else. Now, what's he rebelling against? What is it that he's not believing? In other words, whatever conclusions you come to, they must be in harmony with all the elements and they, there must be conformity. That's why I get so frustrated when I see people that says, Moses is, uh, is in error. Well, how do you know that? Make that conform with the description God has of him. Moses is seizing power. He wants, he wants to be worshipped. Where is that in the Bible? It's obvious, isn't it, that Moses is a type of Christ at his prophet stage, you know. Let me write that down so you understand. Christ has a prophet stage. And Moses is a type of Christ in the prophet stage of Christ's ministry. Okay? So he represents Christ as Christ. Because Christ has a three-stage ministry, doesn't he? He's prophet. What else is he? He's high priest. And then what's the last one? He's king. Okay? Those are his three stages of his ministry. Prophet. High priest and king. Moses is Christ as prophet. Uh, Aaron is type of Christ, type of Christ, type of Christ as Christ is in his high priest stage. What, what stage is Christ in now? He is currently in the high priest stage. The prophet stage ended. When will, when did the prophet stage end? Moses type of Christ in his prophet stage, Aaron type of Christ in his high priest stage. Who is the type of Christ in the context of Moses and Aaron, Exodus, if you will? Who is the type of Christ in his king stage? Who represents Christ when Christ's ministry enters into his king portion or phase? Well, I'll give you, I'll spell his name for you. Yeshua is. Okay, who's that? That is the exact name of Christ, right? Yeshua or Yeshua, whichever one you want. Who has that name? Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. Same exact name, same exact... Everything's the same. He's actually named the same. So Joshua is the type of Christ in his king stage. Duh. Obviously, it's the king who leads Israel into the promised land. It is not for the prophet to do so. It is not for the high priest to do so. It is for the king to do so. Okay? It's not for the prophet to lead Israel into the millennium, nor for the high priest. The king is the one that does that. Isn't it so coincidental that the prophet Moses did not lead? He's not supposed to lead Israel into the promised land. Uh, nor is Aaron. Did either one of them do it? No, they didn't do it. Boy, God got really lucky that they screwed up at Numbers 20 so he could knock them out of leading into the promised land. Does that make sense to you? Because it shouldn't. God is not lucky. It is following the plan perfectly, isn't it? Perfectly. Moses was never going to lead Israel into the promised land. Why not? Huh? 
He wasn't meant to. He was representing Christ as prophet. And Aaron was never going to lead Christ, or I'm sorry, Israel into the promised land because he is representing Christ in his high priest phase. Joshua would represent Christ in the king stage. So the three of them, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, fulfill the type. Okay? Just hope that makes sense for you. Now, <coughs> the prophet ministry of Christ ends when? When did it end? Because it's ended. He's in his high priest stage right now, isn't he? Yes, it ended at his ascension. Some would say it ended at his crucifixion, resurrection. But I will suggest to you that ascension has the most uh, foundational strength as a position. When does the high priest ministry end? When does he stop being high priest? Yeah, it ends when he comes at his second coming, when he comes for Israel. And when he comes for Israel, Israel cries out, Save us, son of David, and blessed is he who comes. That's what they yell at him. Who else yells, Blessed is he who comes? Michael the archangel does. Hey, did you have a question? Oh, just un unable to lift the other arm? Okay. Why? Let me just ask this, by the way. Israel cries out, and we'll get to that, Luke, uh, uh, here in a second. Blessed is he who comes uh, as Christ is coming to them to save them. Why, do they, why does Christ have to save Israel? Because it's at the end of the tribulation. They are in Basra. It is the eighth stage of the campaign of Armageddon. The Antichrist has them surrounded. There's your surrounded theme again. And they cry out for Christ because they are doomed. And they cry out, blessed is he who comes, which is exactly what the archangel shouts at the abduction of the bride. Blessed is he who comes. Now, what's the obvious question? Why are they both shouting this, this, this particular thing? Why is this part of what's being shouted? And by the way, who hears the shout of Michael the archangel? At Thessalonians 4.16. Who has the ears to hear that? Who exactly hears that shout? He says, shouts it out, Behold, the bridegroom comes, and blessed is he who comes. Who can hear it? Does everyone hear it? Yes. That's right. Obviously, the dead in Christ hear it, and they come out of the grave, right? They're, those who are saved come out of the grave, and they are in the air first. Who comes second behind them? The church does that is living. Okay? Who's in the church? Believers are in the church. Who are believers? Here's a, here's a really, really irreverent answer. Who are believers? Believers are believers. Doesn't matter. Are Jews believers? Some are. There's probably a couple hundred thousand Jewish believers in the world today. What will happen to them when they hear the shout? They're going up, just like the dead and just like the rest of us. So they're part of the church and the Gentiles. It is the grafting of the Gentiles onto the, uh, onto the church. Okay, so your choices are, does the nation of Israel hear the archangel shout those two things? Now, the church definitely does. Believers do. How about the world? Does the rest of the... Who has ears to hear this? 
when it shouted? See, that's a very important question ultimately, because how does the church disappear from the earth and no one seemed to, it doesn't seem like anybody notices? How many Christians are there in the world today that are likely subject to that shout and will rise up? How many? How many people live on the earth today? We're probably pushing, we're at least 7 billion. How, what percentage of that is Christian? By the way, you can make the case for the largest number of Christians live where? China. Yeah. That makes sense. They have the most people, don't they? I mean, just math. And, and, and I can tell you that uh, our little puny operation here, we have people in China listening to us. Hi. I don't know. I don't know how they figure it out, who we are. I assume that they may be... English speaking, that would be helpful. What's that? Oh, that's right. Now all you have to do is speak in a phone and you can get the language translated for you, which is why we took Seth out of Spanish. It was, it was obvious to us that Seth was not going to make it through Spanish. He was doomed. So we decided to put him in driver's education. <laughs> That's because they threw him out of girls' choir. Anyway, that's just for his family who, who listened to him. Um, but your choices are the nation of Israel hears it, the church hears it, or the whole world hears it, uh, or some combination. And I think the most likely is remnant Israel uh, hears it. Who is remnant Israel versus apostate Israel? You have apostate Israel, which means what? These are those who will never, who have hardened themselves. They hate Christ. They are not, they are not coming to salvation. Bless their hearts, even though it is offered to them. That's apostate Israel. Remnant Israel is pretty much Israel that is Israel. What I mean by that is those people who live in the nation of Israel. The evidence of Scripture is, is many, a very high percentage of them will be saved. And all of them that are saved, by the way, all of uh, um, there's a wonderful verse in Romans I'll get to in a minute that talks about the remnant Israel that goes through the tribulation that make it to the 1335th day. Okay, why doesn't Israel shout, behold, the bridegroom comes? And this is where we should read Luke uh, 13, 34 through 35. And I knew today was the World Series, you know, and I have to kind of think about things like that. And do we have an ongoing score for the rest of us? That's your job, Katrina. I hate, I hate to say, uh, to, you know, my family is from St. Louis, Poplar Bluff, Missouri, as a matter of fact, and I still have relatives down there that will admit to knowing who I am. And, um, and um, so I should be, uh, my dad loved the St. Louis Cardinals and actually had an opportunity to play professional baseball and and that was the team that uh, that he believed he was going to make, but um, didn't work out for him. In any event, uh, I should be a fan of St. Louis, shouldn't I? So why am I rooting for Texas? What would be the reason? Huh? Would it be the biblical reason? Let's see, Ranger. 
I don't think Rangers in the Bible. Cardinal is blood, kind of red, crimson. I could make the crimson worm out of it and end up with the crucifixion there. I should go to, I should go to St. Louis again, but I'm not. I'm going with the Rangers. Why? What would make the sense for that? Uh, uh, I just, I just can't stand watching the pitcher hit. That's my thing. Well, you know, let's just talk about that for a second. This will get me some, this will get me some emails, won't it? If we're going to do something controversial, let's do designated hitter. Uh, a reliever comes in, throws to a left. He's a, a, a you know a left-handed reliever. He'll come in. He'll throw five pitches to a left-handed hitter. He'll go back to the bullpen to come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? Mm. (laughs) Oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. Yeah, yeah. All they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out. And they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he's a little overweight, but that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses. My own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem, and that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? Oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out. And they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he's a little overweight, but that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses. My own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem. And that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? <laughs> oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out. And they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he's a little overweight, but that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses, my own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem. And that, that's-
that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore. Why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? Mm. (laughs) Oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, all they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out, and they they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he is a little overweight. But that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses. My own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem. And that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? Mm. (laughs) Oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. Yeah, yeah, all they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out, and they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he is a little overweight. But that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses. My own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem. And that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? Oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out, and they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he is a little overweight. But that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses. My own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem. And that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. All they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out. And they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he's a little overweight, but that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses, my own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem, and that's the way it is. They come out again six games later to throw to one other batter. And somehow he's considered a full baseball player. That makes no sense to me. But we complain about the designated hitter who has to perform what is unquestionably the most difficult athletic skill ever. And just because he's fat and can't play shortstop anymore, why shouldn't he get to play? You see the personal application here? <laughs> oh, pitchers can't hit the ball out of the infield. We all hate pitchers. Okay, I was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All they do is they come in and throw to a right-handed batter, one off-speed pitch, and they're out. And they make a million dollars. The designated hitter, he's got to face everybody. Okay, he's a little overweight, but that's not a bad thing. He can still jerk the ball over. I don't care if he is 58 years old. I have witnesses. My own family. Designated hitter is godly. That's why. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, it's a personal problem. And that's the way it is. Huh? Well, of course they are. Rangers are ahead one to nothing. For those of you on the internet who will find that to be ten days old by the time you hear this. Okay, here we go. Luke. Luke 13, 34 through 35. O Jerusalem, this is Christ saying this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Okay? So here's Jerusalem, somebody who kills prophets or wants to kill prophets. That is what they are known for. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See. Your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me. This is Christ saying this. Jerusalem, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is Psalm 118.26, right? So you won't see me until you say this. Now, my question is, is why doesn't Jerusalem or Israel also shout out simultaneously, Behold, the bridegroom comes? Because Michael the archangel says both. Why wouldn't Israel say both? Because Israel says, and that should be obvious, Israel now knows that they're not the bridegroom, don't they? Christ did not come for them. That shout was not for them. The shout was for the church. And they know it. They're at the, they're in the middle of the tribulation, and they understand, by the way, the parable of the ten virgins now, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Because that's where, by the way, behold, the bridegroom comes is shouted, uh, I mean, is said that would be shouted. That, that is where it's revealed, that it comes at the abduction of the bride, which is the church, that's step 11. And now they know the parable of the ten virgins is, uh, in the context of the tribulation. So if you want to know about that, let's just quickly run through it. I have five virgins with oil. They make it through the tribulation to the wedding feast. They have light. They're in a period of darkness. They go through the darkness, and they find their way to the wedding feast, and they get in. 
I have five virgins without oil, and they're shut out. They have to go back and try to find oil, and they can't find oil. If they could have found oil, they would have had oil. Can you transfer your oil, by the way? Can't transfer. Non-transferable. How do you get oil? Only one way to get oil. You get oil as a belief process. But I have five virgins without oil. They're shut out. They don't find their way to the wedding feast. They have no light. They remain in darkness. They perish in the tribulation. God calls them foolish. He calls the ones with oil wise. And he calls the ones without oil foolish. What is God's definition of foolish? That becomes paramount. How does God define foolish? Who are, who are the foolish to God? They're the ones without oil. They're the ones that don't believe. That's foolish to God. It is foolish to not believe. By the way, also says it's evil to not believe. The greatest evil that you can do is to not believe. So, who are the foolish virgins? One thing is certain, the ten virgins are not the bride. How do I know the ten virgins are not the bride? If you have a position that says the ten virgins are not are the bride somehow, or the church somehow, what's your problem? Because, behold, the bridegroom comes. When that is heard, when that is shouted, what happens to the bride? The bride is abducted. So the bride's gone. So whoever that parable is about, it is not about the bride. It is not about the church. The church has been abducted, just been abducted, caught up, taken away. How long has the church taken away for? Hebrew patrol ceremony. Taken away for a seven. What is a seven? It could be seven days. It could be seven months. It could be... Seven years. Ooh, how about that? That's the exact same length of the time of the tribulation. So while the tribulation is going here, the church has been abducted. Hebrew betrothal ceremony. If you have a position otherwise, you are up against the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. You have to throw it out. Good luck with that. I don't like your chances. But anyway, the bride is taken away for a seven. What is the purpose? The consummation. The consummation is happening at the place prepared. What do we call the consummation, by the way, biblically? We call it the judgment seat of Christ. Are you being judged for your salvation? No, you're being judged for your what? Your obedience, that's right. Your works, your walk, your witness. How's some of us going to do? Not so good. Beaten coming. Beaten. Shame. M.R. DeHaan had a wonderful line. Some of us will look up uh, with anticipation and be raptured. Some of us will look to the ground in shame. But you're nonetheless taken. Sorry, you don't get to stay here. It isn't about you. I know you want to stay here and get beheaded or tortured, your fingernails pulled out or you know boiled in oil. I know that's what you want. I can't stop you from wanting that. But that's not going to happen because it isn't about what you want. It is about his pattern and his plan. That's how it works. You don't get to get out of it. Exclude me. And by the way, it's Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, I say this a lot, is very disappointed. And I hope he'll, he will write us. He doesn't want to be abducted. He wants to stay here in the tribulation and do what? Fight for, his, for, the, for the Jews. He wants to be a witness to his people. Bless him for that. He doesn't want to go. He wants to be, die in the most horrible possible way so that some Jew will be saved by his witness. That's what he wants. Good for him. But what happens to poor Arnold? 
It goes with us. Sorry, Arnold. Bummer for you. You don't break the pattern. It's not about you. I know that's a shock. So, who are the ten virgins? Some say believing and unbelieving Jews who go through the tribulation. That would be John Walvert and Roy Zuck, for example, Dallas Theological Seminary. In other words, the ten virgins are remnant Israel, which is Romans 11.26. So when you read Romans 11.26, it isn't saying that all Jews throughout all of history are saved. It's saying that remnant Israel during the tribulation is saved. Okay? It's specific to the tribulation. It's specific to remnant Israel. They will be saved. They are the five wise virgins in contrast to apostate Israel. And they're defined as the foolish virgins who perish. So, to recap that, Walvert and Zuck would say to you that the ten virgins are Jews, believing Jews, unbelieving Jews. And Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum says, uh, no, for example, that these are believing and unbelieving Gentiles in the tribulation. The key there, both of them are correct. This is an in the tribulation parable. The ten virgins is talking about the tribulational period. And so you have to keep it in that context. And Arnold, uh, Mr. Dr. Fruchtenbaum, believes these are, are, are saved and unsaved Gentiles in the tribulation. And some find their way to the wedding feast, the wise, the others, the foolish, do not. And, of course, there's a combination view as well, which I think, by the way, has the most strength, but we'll get to that some other time. I bring all this up again because of Psalm 118.26. What's Psalm 118.26? That's where blessed is he who comes. And blessed is he who comes is said about two people. Blessed is he who comes is said, actually three, if you will. But it's said specifically about two. Two people get to hear that. A king gets to hear it. A king of Israel gets to hear that said about him. And a bridegroom gets to hear that. And of course, the king of Israel, it is said to him, the Messiah king. So let me repeat that. The phrase, blessed is he who comes, is said to a king who is ascending the throne and is said to a bridegroom or a groom at his wedding when he comes under the canopy. So it's said to two people, a groom and a king, because the groom is treated as a king when he comes for his bride. That's important to know that detail. That greatly explains step 10 of the Jewish betrothal wedding ceremony. Jesus Christ, as you know, comes as a bridegroom, and Jesus Christ comes as a king. He comes as both. Does he do it at the same time? No. But that is why it is said to him. That is why Michael the archangel says both. Psalm 118.26, written by Moses. I think it's obvious it's written by Moses. It's shouted by Michael the archangel when Christ comes as a bridegroom along with uh, Behold the Bridegroom Comes. Both of them. And it's also shouted, Psalm 118.26, also shouted by remnant Israel when Christ comes to save them as king. Now, let's open up Psalm 118 really fast. I'm going to go fast now. Well, you are going fast, you say. No, that's not fast. Here comes fast. Psalm 118. I want you to take a look at this. 
Look at the themes. I'll just read them. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Goodness is a theme of Psalm 118. His mercy endures forever. Mercy is a theme. Enduring mercy. Let Israel now say His mercy endures forever, which implies that Israel is not saying that. Okay? Let the house of Aaron. Aaron is involved in this. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Then verse 5, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. What can man do to me? Those who hate me. All nations surrounded me. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. They surrounded me. They were quenched. Verse 17, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He has not given me over to death. I praise you for you have answered me and become my salvation. Now 22, the stone or the rock which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous. We will rejoice. In 118.26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, I wanted you to see all those themes, certain themes, everlasting mercy, the goodness. Notice Aaron being included. Notice Moses calling on the Lord in distress. Notice the hatred and the surrounding and the quenching and the chastening and the salvation and the rock and the rejection. And granted, it is difficult to assign Psalm 118 to a specific circumstance. I know that. I know there's great disagreement here, and it's not easy to assign it. And for some, they don't even believe that Moses is the author. But because it is intensely messianic in its format. By the way, it is Psalm 118 is the most quoted uh, in the New Testament. It's quoted constantly in the New Testament. And by the way, it can only describe Moses and Christ. And it could only have been written by Moses. He was the rejected stone. He was constantly rejected. He is the stone that the builders rejected as well as a type of Christ who is the ultimate stone or ultimate rock that the builders rejected. Okay? It's the Deuteronomy 18.15, prophet unto me. I then look at the place where Moses and Aaron were hated and rejected by Israel. The place is, there's most, there's a lot of them, but I look for the place where they were hated and rejected, and where God was the most merciful and the most, you know, His goodness poured out. I look for a place where Moses was chastened. I look for a place where His death was imminent. And I look for a place where the rock that is Christ was central. Where is that place where all of those elements are there? Numbers 20. I submit that Numbers 20 is the event that is being described by Psalm 118. And in addition, I have the blessed is he who comes, the shout for the king and the shout for the bridegroom. Numbers 20, the Numbers 20 event, the actions of Numbers 20, they end effectively two ministries. They end the, the actions and the events of Numbers 20 ends the ministry of Moses as prophet and the ministry of Aaron as high priest. The departure of Moses occurs because of Numbers 20.
the shout for the king who comes would be next, right? If I end the high priest and I end the prophet, then it would only be appropriate that I have the shout for the king. And that is also in Psalm 118. So back we go to Numbers 20 in our list from last week. Specifically item L. It's also item R, but I didn't put item R on the board last week. <coughs> item L is um, the rod, the striking. Take the rod is item L. I'm sorry. Um, take the rod is L. Strike, the striking or the killing or the smoting with the rod is R. So that's what we're looking at today. Take the rod and the striking or the smoting, the stone twice with the rod, both of which raise difficult questions. Now, I asked you a couple of those questions last week, and you should have solved them by now. You've had a whole week. How did you do? Yes. Okay. Oh, it is them rebelling. He asked, uh, why is it not Moses and Aaron rebelling? It is Moses and Aaron rebelling. What is the nature of the rebellion? That's the key. So what is the nature of the rebellion? You think it's what? I don't think so. It doesn't fit with Moses. He's the most humble. doesn't conform. He is not described as prideful or arrogant in any way. He is described as the most humble man of all and the most faithful servant. So how do you get pride... Into that. Hold it. I have the woman with one arm, but, and she worked all day, and she raised her hand, and now she's going to get the floor. Yes, ma'am. He's disappointed, she says. Is that the same as pride? He's disappointed that they hate him and want to kill him? Were you here last week? Okay, whose fault was that? Okay. No, it's Jonas' fault, not your fault. He is the leader of the household, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4. If he doesn't bring you here, he's going to be held accountable. There's nothing I can do for him. Am I going to stand next to him? No, I know better than that. Uh, Yes. Yeah, I do have that. By the way, that's where I will head next week. I do think that the rebellion is, is they were, they were, they wanted to quit. They had a whole bunch of people who were going to kill them. They had just gone through this water thing before, 40 years ago. Should have got that right. It's like they didn't remember a thing they were ever taught. Right. Would that be rebellion? Would that be not believing God? See, whatever it is, and we'll, we'll, we'll raise everything up, and I'll, I'll try to make that, uh, I'll try to make my case next week. Whatever it is, it's gotta fit with humble and faithful, but it also has to fit with rebellion and not believing something. Go, Dave. Huh? What, what, what about authority?
were they, what was their motive becomes central here. Why is it that they did this? Did they do it to gain something for themselves? No, in fact, it doesn't look like they're going to gain anything. It looks like by striking the rock twice, they have the Nadab, Abihu scenario leap off the page and they are slain by God in front of the nation of Israel to protect the doctrine of the crucifixion of Christ. That's what looks like what's going to happen. Did they know that? In which case, what did they gain? They gained death. They, is that what they're after? Because that seems to be their motive. Why do they want to gain death? And we'll get to that in a, a, a second, but I'm down to three minutes, so let me finish. If the explicit instructions, these are these diff, two difficult questions. If the explicit instructions are to speak to the rock, speak to the stone, what is the purpose of taking the rod? That's what I asked last week. That's for Misty. Why is the presence of the rod required? If I don't, if all I'm going to do is speak, why do I even have a rod? I should leave the rod behind. Can't get to answer it now because I've got to hustle. Remember, numbers, hitting Markel. Okay, thank you. Remember Numbers 27 through 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron. So not only just take the rod, but it's you and your brother Aaron. So you take the rod and you take your brother Aaron and you speak to the rock before their eyes, the nation of Israel, and it will yield water. It's water. And I asked, what were they supposed to say to the rock? Okay, so why take the rod? What were they supposed to say to the rock? And take the rod is commanded by God specifically, Numbers 29. So we have to figure out its purpose. Why did God command Moses to take it? And then why did Moses strike the rock twice? That's the other part of this. Why twice? That means that a rock ultimately, what is the rock again? The rock, the stone is a symbol of who? It's a symbol of Christ. And it's killed a total of how many times now? Three times. Once in Exodus 17, 40 years later, twice in Numbers 20. So I have kill the rock, Exodus 17, 40 years, kill the rock twice, Numbers 20. Why? What is the resultant meaning of that? Okay, how do we solve those two questions? What do we, where do we start? Three questions, really. What, is, what was he supposed to say? Can we figure that out? Why did he hit it twice? What's the purpose of the rod? How do we solve it? Exodus 17 is a very good place to go. I'm going to say go back all the way to Exodus 4, though. You, you begin by gathering up, but I can't skip 17. It's critical because you've got to see the difference in the similarity. We begin by gathering up the meaning of the rod, Right? We know from Scripture in Exodus 4 that if I throw the rod to the ground, what's it become? It becomes a serpent, okay? I'll tell you immediately, I'll skip it here a little bit. Isaiah 11.1. What's Isaiah 11.1? There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. So the rod is what? Let me help you. It's capital rod, right? The rod is who? It's Christ. So take Christ. Take Christ. That's right, it's the take me, isn't it? So, we know that when we throw the rod, 
down to the ground, it becomes a serpent. And if we grab the rod by the tail or the serpent by the tail, it goes back to being a shepherd's staff, right? And Aaron cast down the rod in front of Pharaoh, and what did the rod do? It became a serpent, and the magicians of Pharaoh did what? They threw their rods down, and their rods became what? Serpents as well. And what did Aaron's rod do then at that point? It ate the other ones up, so I have the snake swallowing going on. Now, that to me is pretty cool in the circus, sword swallowing. I don't think I'm impressed with. But I see a snake swallower, he's getting his money for me. I think that would be freaky, but never mind. Number 17, by the way, uh, tells us that Aaron's rod sprouted buds and blossoms. So the rod is one of the three signs of Moses. There are three signs of Moses. Cast down the rod, it becomes a servant. Uh, It also, by the way, when I lift it up and put a serpent on a rod, a fiery serpent that I bronzed, uh, it becomes a, it saves Israel, doesn't it? But all of this is connected, obviously connected, when combined with Moses' leprous hand sign, right? He's given three signs. Here's your rod sign, here's your leprous hand sign, here's the water into blood sign. Those are your three signs. If you give that to Israel, what will they do? They'll believe. Did they? Yeah, it didn't seem to go so well. Now you add Isaiah 11.1, 1, the rod is Christ, to Exodus 4, Exodus 7, Exodus 17, Numbers 17, Numbers 20, Numbers 21, and that will tell us that the rod is a symbol of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He swallows snakes. What's that mean? Yeah, he swallows, he swallows Satan, and he swallows the brood of Satan, doesn't he? He comes to life when he looks like... Uh, when it looks like it's just a rod, all of a sudden it blossoms and buds and sprouts leaves. Um, he brings living water from a rock. He's lifted up and he saves those who look to him. He is the rod. And thus at Numbers 20, Moses is bringing Christ to Christ and striking Christ twice with Christ. And Christ yields living water from Christ. Does that make sense? That's how it works. Let me repeat that. Numbers 20 Moses is bringing Christ to Christ and striking Christ twice with Christ, and Christ yields living water from Christ for the second time to a nation that rejects him and intended to kill Moses and Aaron, who are types of Christ, in his first and second phases of his ministry. And there it's all done. Makes perfect sense. Move along. Nothing more to see. Or you can come back next week because I'm out of time. The thing is blinking. But you can do this. You can put the three signs of Moses together. The casting down of the rod, the leprous hand, the water into, the water into, say it with me, the water into, oh no, no, I would say the water into wine, which was performed at a wedding. Of course, we'd expect that. Blessed is he who comes, right? John 2 at a wedding. Next week, we'll finish it for you. But you don't really need me. You can do this. Let's rise and be dismissed.